This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDI. I'm Tony Lepstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or, or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. Well, good morning, Rick. Good morning, Tony. So, my guest this morning is Rick Halterman. He's the author of Curriculum of the Soul. He has been a guest on the show, I believe this is now your eighth time, and you also do a radio show out in Taos, New Mexico at the radio station KTAO. That's correct. And your show is Sunday mornings at... at 8 to 11 Mountain Time. Oh, I thought it started at 11 hour time, so it starts at 10 o'clock hour time. That's correct, yeah. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay, so Sunday mornings from 10 to 1 hour time. Right. For anybody who would like to check out your show, you do a jazz show along with reading poetry, which is a very unique combination. Yeah, and you know, it's like this week I'm going to do a show on on the fact that we're in uh, Women's History Month, and I want to sort of be drenched by the feminine, so it'll be all women jazz musicians as well as women poets, and that could even lead into you know what we're going to be talking about today as well. So keep that in mind because you might want to check out Rick's show on a Sunday morning. Um, so you sent me something that you wrote a couple of days ago, or was it yesterday? And I'm um, I'm looking for it right now. 
Um, let's see. Now I have a copy here as well, Tonio. The, the name of the piece is called Towards the New Paradigm. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I just brought it up. Just, just in case I need to reference or search for something in particular. So... Yeah. So to speak, so that we're on the same page. But we're pretty much always on the same page, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I call you, so I can make sure that I'm, I'm heading in the right direction, because you're kind of my, my touchstone here, Tonio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you give me too much credit. <laughs> no, the, you know, what I realize that because you have a certain distance in, in terms of where you live and in terms of how you know how much or how little you interact with the world that that you have a, a certain perspective that one does not often hear out there most people usually are very much embroiled in the standard paradigm you're clearly out of the standard paradigm and so that's why i love talking to you because i can get that viewpoint much more clearly than i can anywhere else Ah, uh, I now I understand. Yeah, it it it's always wonderful to be able to find like-minded and like-hearted and like-spirited people to uh, to engage with. Yeah, and you know, to to head us into this direction. Remember, a few weeks ago, you had a very interesting guest, Susie Ross, who was the scientist talking about the thirteen stages of transformation. Oh yes, and and I and as I was. Considering that just in the last couple of days, I said, you know, that I think what was that one stage that you all were really talking about, which was kind of a critical stage? I believe it's dismemberment. Is, was that the term? That was, that's one of the 13 phases, yes. And that, that is the term for, that's like, like in the Tarot, there's the Three of Swords. Yes. Which is the pic, depicted by the image of three swords penetrating a heart. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> a, a very graphic uh, image. <laughs> and the reason why I, I brought that up is that dismemberment seems to be the exact place where we are with the current paradigm. Yes. I would, or, or on the edge of that. Maybe not quite in it, but we're, we're definitely getting close to it. I'd say that we are we are in a state of what what she labeled as disorientation is what i think we we are deep into disorientation and on the verge of dismemberment yeah so so it's so interesting and this is why it's so great to talk to you cuz i can get your reflection and your take on it and see see how how you're perceiving all this as i mentioned in that that piece i sent to you all the places, not all the places, but a lot of the places where we used to put our faith as a culture, whether it was in established religions, whether it was in government, uh, you know, aspects of Western medicine, even in, you know, personal relationships, how they used to be created. A lot of those places we can't put our faith anymore because we've been disillusioned or they're, they're just simply falling apart. Are you noticing the same thing? Oh, yes. And that's, that's actually the very definition of the phase of disorientation. Oh, okay. Because you're, you're literally in between two worlds or two paradigms. You, you, are no longer, you no longer can 
can stand on the old ground because the old ground has been steadily crumbling. And, and at this point, it hasn't completely crumbled because we're still standing on that ground, but it's yeah. very shaky and it's scary and disturbing and it's not working for, for most people. Mm-hmm. But I think that's very accurate. But we're not in the new world yet either because no. we, we haven't really figured out how to make that real yet. Mm-hmm. Or to mm-hmm. manifest it. Yeah. So let's. So let's. I guess for the sake of of the listener, for those that that uh, you know may not be certain ex- exactly, how would you describe you know this this old paradigm? Like, what are the old reference points that we're still kind of uh, you know in some cases clinging, but adhering to? That you know, I think we we need to sort of set that that you know set out that landscape so people are understanding exactly what we're talking about. Then we can start talking about how to make a way through and then what might even be the possibility of a new paradigm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that Charles Eisenstein did a wonderful job of describing the old paradigm in his book, The Ascent of Humanity, which came out about 13 years ago, I think, maybe, maybe lo- longer. Um, it's, it's an age of, it's a paradigm of separation of hard materialism where um, everything is, what you see is what you get and that's it. There's, there's nothing beyond that. We're all like the John Wayne school of, <laughs> of sociology where and psychology where we are islands unto ourselves. It's yeah. me against the world. Um, that kind of a thing. Man against nature. Um, man, patriarchal dominance. Women are, mm-hmm. are supposed to be in, in the uh, kitchen and taking care of the children. What, getting into some of those elements of what you described as the old structures that yeah that we took for granted and somehow or other learned to put our faith in. Yes. Yeah. And, and I would even add some terms that everything you're saying is absolutely accurate. And then I'd add the terms that we had those reference points. There's certainly shame and blame became part of this very thing you're talking about. Oh, yes, absolutely. Success, <laughs> celebrity, uh, validation, approval all these kinds of things that have created this very interesting paradigm. And clearly, it's, it's, at least from my perspective, it's wearing itself out. You know, that, that I think without getting into the actual conversation of politics, but politics would be a really great example of where, for instance, and I think this is what happens with certain paradigms, when there's no longer solid ground to stand on, then it becomes just a quest for power. And we're seeing that in politics. And I think there's even a question of, is the two-party system really even functional in today's world anymore? Well, it's kind of ironic because the quest for power has been endemic in our societies for thousands of years, I think. Oh, yeah. So I think... But now the difference is, is that now it's so apparent that and at least in the past, there was the guise of certain principles that the, even though the power was still 
you know, trying to do its thing. Uh, now yes. we just have people going after power with virtually no principles to back it up whatsoever. Or, or they're not hiding right. it anymore. Exactly. <laughs> but so, so but tell I, me, when did you, in your own life, Tonio, become aware of this this particular this older paradigm? And because obviously you you clearly have not dropped into it in the course of your life. When when did it become apparent? Well, I was a bit unusual in that I started realizing that very early in my life. I had parents who were a little bit more enlightened than most people in in terms of being able to see through the uh, hypocrisy of our culture and the the hollowness of of the paradigm that that everybody believed in yeah and took for granted assumed that was real without question yes yeah and i learned to question these things i'm not sure exactly how but i i remember i think one one thing that really shook shook my perspective was living in southern Spain for a year when I was a child and seeing a completely different culture. Yeah, that was when, when I remember in, in a previous conversation your father was painting in a room that was adjacent to your bedroom. Actually, this that was in New York City after returning oh, okay. from, from Spain. That was immediately after Spain. But in Spain, um, we lived... Southern Spain was very poor, and that was actually the hotbed of the resistance against Franco at the time. Wow. And the people around us were dirt poor, and yet they shared everything. They were incredibly generous, incredibly kind, incredibly humane, and, and just real human beings unlike you would find here in this country for the most part, or at least for me growing up in, in New York City, um, it was a hostile world, basically. Hostile in school with other kids, hostile on the streets, host- you know, adults being hostile towards each other in, their, in, in various ways. Just, just living out the old paradigm is, is an embodiment and expression of hostility. Dog eat dog. Dog eat dog in many different ways and different levels of subtlety as well. Yeah. So, so it was clear that you, you didn't buy into the old paradigm. And you've, you have figured out a way to make your own way uh, without having to fall into that particular trap. Well, the thing is that even though I could see beyond it, I was still living in it as well, right? Mm-hmm. Even while we're seeing beyond it and, and doing our best to envision a new world or, or at least in the beginning realizing that the old world was, was faulty. It, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't just, it wasn't fair, it wasn't, it was far from what should be, and yet there wasn't a new world yet. There were, there were a few people who, 
who behaved in ways that were kind and loving and selfless, but they were few and far between. And also, I grew up um, at a time when people were were exploring consciousness as well, smoking pot and taking LSD, and my parents were 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 doing those things as well. So that helped me to uh, expand my perspective and see beyond the the rigid confines of the old paradigm. Yeah, yeah. So here we are now with with still this old thing doing what it can, but it's it's clear that it's you know to some extent crumbling around us, and that's very interesting. So I guess the the, the next step is. How does one make a way in this transition? Like, like, how are you finding a way to to keep yourself sane and hopefully happy in the course of this transition? That is, that's been my lifelong challenge. I mean, I've I've spent an overwhelming part of my life in the stage of disorientation, with with a few um, phases of dismemberment and and all the other phases, pretty yeah. much. But uh, a lot of disorientation, um, it's, it's very challenging. Maintaining my sanity, for a, a lot of my life, I didn't feel terribly sane. Not that I was clinically insane, but right. I didn't feel particularly sane within myself. I didn't know how to keep myself or, or be happy. I was miserable for, yeah. for long periods of my life. And um, I observed lo- most people around me being miserable, and the people who who claimed to be happy or who thought they were happy, um, it wasn't it wasn't as true as as it might appear on the surface. I would say it didn't feel that true necessarily. I I would say there was a lot of um, salesmanship going on, a lot of f- facades and 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 posturing and face painting, so to speak. Yeah, I, I, I saw a, another version of that very same thing, Tonya, when I was a property manager up in Colorado, and I worked for very wealthy people, and I can say that most of them were not particularly happy, even though they would put on the facade that I have money, I can do whatever I want, and, and it, it was that facade of happiness, but it was clear they really weren't because you could see they never laughed, they never smiled, um, and they weren't particularly kind. This is not all of them by any means, mm-hmm. but definitely a good portion of them. Mm-hmm. And I think what I experienced in southern Spain was the people had hard lives. They they had they worked hard, and they didn't have much to show for it, but they had their families, and people respected each other, and people were kind, and people were generous. And I don't know if you would say that people were happy, but I would say that they weren't unhappy. They weren't miserable like like is endemic here in this country, where people truly are deeply, deeply miserable in this country. Not Not about everything, but... There's almost always things that people can find to be upset about, like politics these days yeah. is is generally throwing most people for a major loop. I would say dismember people 
are experiencing, I think a, a lot of people are experiencing a, a certain degree of dismemberment within, you know, the experience of our political system and what's going on in our in our politics. And, and a lot of it is really psychological because most of what is actually happening politically isn't directly affecting most of us. We're just observing the way it's, it's devastating the lives of, of many, many other people. And, and I was wondering about this question. Do you think there's a belief out there, Tonio, that, that this, again, this old paradigm has it programmed in that depending on who happens to be in office, that our happiness will be determined accordingly or, or, or our unhappiness will be determined accordingly. Oh, absolutely. I think politics is very much like sports. Like, I remember when I was a kid, um, I would, there, were, there were a few phases, not very long, but there were a few phases where I was following professional sports and I would, I would be very upset when my team lost or, or, or things like that. And I, it, I see a very distinct parallel between sports in that way and politics, that people get um, very attached to pol- political outcomes and political positions when if if we were good students of history including our current very modern short-term history we would realize that our political system is is a total mess and there's no reason for us to allow it to make us miserable and yet that's precisely what i would say many people are doing and that's accurate in fact, if it's okay, there's a, a short poem here, which, which the, and the reason I discovered this poem was that I was at a poetry reading in Marin County right after the 2016 election. Mm. Marin County is, is fairly liberal. And Robert Haas brought this poem to this reading, and it was Denise Levertov's poem called The Fountain. And this was his response to, to that, that, the election of Donald Trump, and everybody was in complete despair at the time. But the name of the poem is called The Fountain. And here it is. Don't say, don't say there is no water to solace the dryness at our heart. I've seen the fountain springing out of the rock wall and you drinking there. And I, too, before your eyes, found footholds and climbed to drink the cool water. The woman of that place, shading her eyes, frowned as she watched, but not because she grudged the water only because she was waiting to see we drank our fill and were refreshed. Don't say, don't say there is no water. The fountain is there among its scalloped gray and green stones. It's still there and always there with its quiet song and strange power to spring in us up and out through the rock. So Robert was really trying to Thing bring oh so a glimmer of light in what seemed to be at that particular moment uh, a rather hopeless time for those people that were, were hoping for the very thing you just mentioned, Tonya, hoping for a different outcome. And I think that a lot of people there seems to be this alarm right now as far as 
well, we may be at the end of the possibility of democracy where we are with our politics at this moment. And there's a part of me that says, well, but hasn't it really been more about capitalism for the last 30 or 40 years anyhow? Or way, way longer than just that. I would say that politics has always been beyond our reach, but it's just more starkly um, obvious at this point. It's now yeah. right on the surface. There's nothing hiding it or very little hiding it at this point. So, yeah. And yeah, go ahead. That's accurate. And, and I'd say, so back to, you know, like the, the, the thread, the stream of your life, you somehow created your own map. And um, I wouldn't say so much. I was, I was trying... I was trying to create my own map, and that's that's the essence of disorientation, is mm. trying to find one's ways, trying to navigate the unknown. When you when you realize that the old doesn't work, and you and like I did, I knew I did not want to play the old game. I no longer wanted to become a master of the old universe. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I didn't know what the what the new world really looked like because I grew up in poverty and misery. All the people around me were deeply miserable and depressed. So there were no role models for me to um, model a new way of living, really. I mean, for the most part, I could see ways I had awareness of what didn't work and everyone was talking about what didn't work but people didn't really know what could work what was really possible and that that's that's the that's the uh you know hopping onto a boat sailing into a, a huge ocean and not knowing what's on the other side or even if there is anything on the other side but but deeply hoping and longing for something to be on the other side and not having any idea whatsoever how to get there, but just hoping and, you know, wishing. Um, I, I hesitate to use that term wishing and, and thinking that it's just wishful thinking. I think it's... I, I did... From, from my childhood, I did have a sense of, of believing in infinite possibility, but it was hard to maintain that in the face of everything that I experienced in the outer world around me. And where is that belief right now? Well, it's, getting, it's gotten stronger and stronger as I've had more and more experience and have learned new ways and and come across better models, more models of, of new paradigm behavior and being, as I'm sure so it, you have as well. And it sounds like, in a sense, you have created your own map. And this kind of goes back to one of our previous conversations when you brought up that idea of 100% responsibility. That, that, and that seems to me the direction towards the new paradigm that with, with enough people doing that kind of work, something new has to show up. It sounds like you've been doing your version of that up to this point and that you have in fact created a map because 
you know, when I listen to your interviews, and this is what's so brilliant about them, you're, you're interviewing a lot of people that are really kind of on the fringe, but they're really talking, it's like Anne-Marie, when she's talking about her whole approach to helping people that are in the process of dying, for instance. You know, or here's Susie Ross, who's talking about transformation. These are people that are really talking about, you know, these new ways to go about things or to look at things in terms of how are we going to keep this process going. I'm, I'm fascinated to learn other people's new maps. I wouldn't say that I, I'm, I'm always interested in, in new maps, in learning and studying new maps and adapting them, living them, practicing them, and testing them. And, but because of the chaotic nature of my childhood and my upbringing, my tendency, and it's a, it's a, an odd one, is to practice something and then discover, find another one and and try another one. Like you, you know, you must. You're. I'm sure you know the the metaphor of of um, digging a well, and instead of just dedicating all your efforts to dealing, digging one really deep well. You dig lots of shallow wells. <laughs> well, my life has been full of digging lots of different wells. And I wouldn't say that I haven't gone deep with many of these wells. I feel like I have gone very deep. But for some strange, some, perhaps somewhat self-destructive or self-limiting, self-sabotaging reason, I tend to either discuss guard or or forget or disregard some of the the maps that I've discovered that work that really work quite well just to learn new ones as if my life is an experiment and a study as opposed to a single-minded um, journey to a, a very specific goal and and is there anything particularly wrong with that? Would you say? Um, not necessarily. It depends on what what you're most wanting or what's most yeah. important to you. It seems, you know, it seems to me maybe, and you know, now we'll end up using that word soul. That your soul really likes trying on all these different clothes, you know, in terms of ways to go about things, and is really quite adaptable in that sense. Most souls that I'm aware of are not. So that's interesting in itself, don't you think? Well, yes. Your, your description, yeah, that's, that's very true for me. I, I have been known to, to take something really wonderful and, and essentially just like almost like smash it against the wall so that I have to start over from scratch, so that I go from a place of, of being really happy and, and fulfilled, and, and I kind of force myself, I, I submit myself to having to literally start all over and, and rebuild, find a whole new map, rebuild, you know, navigate through the unknown all over again, just to... I'm not sure what it is I'm I'm trying to do. Whether it's 
curiosity, whether it's, you know, <laughs> there's another wonderful metaphor, you know, curiosity killed the cat kind of a thing, and cats, yeah, yeah. cats need nine lives because I would say that, that I have a sort of kinship with, with, that, with that feline nature or that metaphorical feline nature of, um, of courting a kind of danger, of courting a kind of self-destruction in the face of what, like a cat can just settle down and stop and purr and be, <laughs> and be right there. Yeah, yeah. Needing nothing more. And yet, cats are are uh, are so curious. I mean, they will they will get themselves into things that they can't get out of sometimes. <laughs> Just out of out of like this this intense curiosity, this this almost death defying curiosity. And what 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 it sounds like though, Antonio, is that there may be a part of you, of course, that distrusts happiness. And and I can't even remember what film it was. Uh, oh, I know it was. It was in Tender Mercies with Robert Duvall, where he said, you know, he didn't trust happiness uh, because there was a certain point where it was going to collapse on you anyhow. Yes. It sounds like <laughs> at least your nature yes. is, far, is happier being curious than curious being happy. Well, I'd say that um, happiness can get old and after a while, in a way. Yeah, well... Yeah, it can turn into the comfort zone. Yeah, or or yeah, something like that. Or or it can get I don't know a bit a bit yeah a bit stale or old or or yeah. not a challenge anymore. And it's like yeah, I think the challenge part seems to be even though I I question that that challenge impulse as well. I, uh, like I what see, a, what I trouble see, am I getting myself into now? Well, the thing is, I watch other people do things like that, and I go, "Why? Why the hell are you doing that? Why would you throw that away?" But, but I do it. I've done it so many times in my life to my to my own despair, and and. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting. So now we're getting into this very, this, you know, these sort of end game ideas, which is, you know, there's one perspective, and, and I happen to like this perspective, which is the whole point of us being here is not for looking for meaning or happiness or anything like that. The whole point of us being here is for the evolution of the soul. And our individual evolution, in terms of our individual souls, is what's going to evolve the soul of the world, the, the anima mundi. Uh, and that's what will bring about the new paradigm. Does that make any sense? Um, yes, but perhaps not even being so concerned about the new paradigm that maybe the journey itself is the new yeah, paradigm? Yeah. Yeah, is yeah. that possible? I, I, I agree because I don't, I don't see a destination per se because it's always that if we truly are interested in the evolution of the soul, there's always going to be movement. It'll never, there'll never be a stasis as far as, well, now we're here, we can relax and, and, and you know, have our cocktails, whatever. And but, let, me, let me bring it back a step, because you're saying the evolution of, of the soul. I would say the evolution of, of ourselves, our whole, our whole beings, our wholeness. Not to, not to, because 
to talk about the soul is sort of like talking about a separate aspect of ourselves. And I, I really want, I don't want us to get distracted by notions of separation in any way. I, I really want part of my, my, my envisioning of the new paradigm is to see this new, new expression or new experience or new realization of this quote-unquote new paradigm as being a holistic experience in ourselves and and I'm just and I'm finding myself distrusting the term soul as being something that being like a stumbling block in that process does that make oh, sense to you I think we're just getting a little semantic here because this is what's of course so difficult when using a term like soul uh-huh. we all have we all have very different reference points in terms of what does this actually mean for me soul is all encompassing in terms of whatever's happening in my soul is going to determine whatever is happening in my outward behavior in the world so if my soul is feeling compassionate then it's going to go out and be compassionate out in the world that is that it's completely integrated with all these other actions and that can include all the horrible things that i might do in terms of my prejudices and you know my my judgments and all those things that i know are all running in there all the time anyhow but and you you're using the language of my soul, my soul, as if it's a part of me. And well, there's, there's one part which is very much a part of me because it has whatever gift, like, you know, your gift of curiosity, which is why, obviously, you do the work that you do as an interviewer. And it's, it's really an amazing gift that you have. But there's a larger part of my soul which is very connected to yours and the rest of the world, too, that it's not a separate thing like, you know, my body is separate from your body or something like that. We do have our gifts, but there is a larger thing because the soul, if it's in theory, and, and I do believe this, it's connected to the divine, then it's, that's where we're all really connected at that level. Language is so tricky because yeah. I can yeah. see that we're really talking about the same thing. It's yeah. just that I'm, because I'm, I do this radio show and I'm so concerned about how easy it is to um, make it harder for other people to understand the simplicity and mm-hmm. of what I'm trying to express. Yeah, yeah. And every time there's even a hint of separation or otherness even within oneself you know thinking of any of the parts or aspects of ourselves as being other or or separate things then part there's a i i just i bristle i'm like no i don't want that i don't i i don't want to fall into that trap, and I don't want anybody else to 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 fall into that trap, listening to me or to think that that's what I'm talking about. It, you know, whatever it is, whatever's going on inside of us, it's all it's us. 
-hmm. It's part of who we are. And and that and there's a, a nested hierarchy of all of that within this you know within the universe. You know, we are parts uh, on many nested levels of of a greater wholeness, a greater integrity. Of, and and I, I agree with all that. And I think, you know, we're kind of talking, trying to discern sort of different levels here. That, for instance, like, like if I look at my old, my old paradigm aspects of myself, Tonio, I realize that there was a certain point, it's like, oh, gosh, these are things that I unconsciously learned. Sort of like there's a certain fears that I have learned or, or you know, a belief that I might be unworthy or unlovable, something like that. And that's where the work for me personally begins to I, so I can get to that larger place that you're talking about, which is what, in fact, we all share as human beings probably from the moment of our birth, that we all have this shared thing. And, and, that's, and the old paradigm, like you're in quite rightfully when you say this is the separateness and this is all of the old paradigm, where the new paradigm, wherever that may be, is going to realize oh, it's not really about separateness at all. It's really about inclusiveness. It's about connectedness. That's, what the, that's, that's where we're heading. Right. And that inclusiveness also includes the old paradigm. It also includes those, those aspects of ourselves that we, we tend to other. Yes. Those unconscious, self-destructive, or whatever things that we want to change or want to reject or deny those are those are parts of the wholeness of our our experience yes and now now you know without wanting to get particularly religious about this but i think this was certainly what what the the idea of the christ energy was bringing but also you could put it in terms of buddha consciousness in terms of you know, whatever religious context you want to put yes that, particularly for the christ consciousness was that that it's all based on unconditional love. Yes, well, that really bringing that up, that including my yes. awful parts, yes, including the parts where I'm dysfunctional with the world. Yes, that we can love <laughs> that too and realize, oh, I'm still connected with everyone. I'm not separate because of it. Yes, exactly. And the the uh, the story of Jesus and you know embracing the lepers and and. And not rejecting the the prostitutes, you know, embracing everybody, and and yeah. and yes, that yeah, and, and, and the and other always always embracing the other, finding the most othered other possible, and embracing them, and 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 trying to demonstrate for for others that they needed to be embraced and brought within the fold as well. You know, of, I don't know if you've read any of Father Gregory Boyle's books, you know, Tattoos on the Heart and, um, and Barking at the Choir. He's, he's the Jesuit priest that went into south-central L.A. and is helping the gang members, started Homeboy Industries and all that. And he, he says exactly what you were just saying. He says, Jesus said, we have to help the lowly. That, he says, that's our real work, is to be involved with them. And I remember how once... Father Gregory Boyle talks about being in an airport, and some woman came up to him and was giving him all sorts of accolades for all the wonderful work he's doing and changing the world. And he just looked at her, you know, and of course he was appreciative, but, but he said, but they're teaching me so much more about myself. 
that's why I do this. That's be- that's because it's not so much about helping them, helping others, although that's a very noble thing to do, but it's about embracing and realizing that the other is us, is part yeah. of us, is an yeah. essential part of us. And that's why we can learn so much from, in fact, we can learn the most from that which we tend to other the most. Yeah. Yeah. So That we're the so most afraid of or distrust the most. Those are the elements that we can learn the most from because those are the things those are the aspects of ourselves that we most need to embrace and reconnect with consciously if possible but even if we don't do it consciously those are still parts of us absolutely absolutely and, and that's why i think this is where the like little glimmers of that new paradigm which has actually been around all along but that when we get away from the separateness thing, like you had mentioned before, and get more towards this thing of, oh, so if in fact the world, I turn the world into a reflection somehow of whatever's happening inside of me, including all the people that are really struggling, then to what extent by, say, working with those people, or like as we had talked about in a previous conversation, practicing Ho'oponopono on, you know, say, a situation, whatever, that, that we are actually cleaning that up inside ourselves. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, while you were saying that, I was reflecting on or feeling into embracing the suffering part of it, the, the dark, the unknown part of it, the, because... Um, well, for one thing, I've been going through a dark phase recently in in various ways and, and actually having it manifesting in my outer experience as well <laughs> in various ways. And how ways. are you dealing with it? Um, the way I've always dealt with it, like sort of at my, not at my, at certain moments, like wondering what the hell am I doing and at other moments just being with it, just as soon as I remember to just be here, be present, it all, how, it all dissolves. Oh, you're, you're in this phase. Say that again? How, how can you tell that you're in this particular phase, this dark phase? <laughs> uh, I just feel it. I mean, yeah. I, I just know, I mean, it's because it's uncomfortable. Uh-huh. That's, that's it. It's uncomfortable, and I want to I change it. I want it to be different. And when I'm engaged, it yeah, it's like I want to fix it. I want to yeah. change it. I, I, I don't, I'm not comfortable here um, because I'm, I, have, I have fallen into, into the trap of separation between myself and this experience that I'm having, that, that myself is something different and that this unpleasant experience there's no room for it in my life because I'm, I'm not opening. My container isn't, isn't big enough. My heart isn't big enough to contain that. So I've contracted, essentially. I've, Where are you right now with that experience? <laughs> 
at this very moment, um, I'm pretty clear about it. Yeah. But I go, I've been going in and out of it. And, I mean, literally going in and out of it throughout the day, you know, for the last, for a period of time, and, and feeling certain feelings in my body and in my being, and, and interpreting them in othering and quote-unquote negative ways. Uh, you know, I guess because I know this place well, also, Tonio. Um, I see see my little, you know, little whatever is going on, and and some part of me seems to ask, although not necessarily very consciously, because sometimes I can be kind of taken out by this. But it's asking, is it stuck or is it evolving? You know, or is it moving? That, that that's really kind of the the core thing for me. Is, and if it's not moving, then sometimes it's like okay. Then I can sit around with the stuckness until it's basically that becomes unbearable, and then inevitably I'll go go out into nature. That's at least how I do it. But sometimes it can happen swimming laps or something like that. That that I want some movement, even though it's not going to necessarily make it better. But if there's some kind of movement, or you know, like having a conversation with you, that would definitely help with getting some kind of movement because then I would get enlightened by whatever. Just the, the talking with talking to a kindred spirit would be totally reassuring for me. Mm-hmm. And it's not like we can really do anything wrong, but those are all impulses away from the discomfort. And even and even though it is an impulse towards reintegration and wholeness and feel or feeling better, you know, there's different ways of talking about it. It's when you're when I'm still in that place of disconnection and separation, I can experience it at very subtle levels where I where I'll realize that, oh, I'm I'm playing this game of separation with myself again and and distrusting even distrusting my impulse to feel better or to reconnect because I'm I'm disconnected in my in my orientation towards connection. It's so interesting because <laughs> I, I know that you've acquired a fair number of tools in the course of your lifetime. Oh, tons. Way more than I could ever really need. <laughs> could ever use. Well, no, I've so, used so, them all, but the thing is I don't need any more than just one or two or three. I mean, I have found that in in different situations, certain ones work better than others in certain situations but again those are that again that's using methods or maps or technologies to escape my discomfort well i guess and i don't know if if again this is a very interesting area as far as whether you have a goal or not for me it almost comes down to uh and i don't know if this sounds too black and white but it's like well how do i get back to my loving Maybe. Exactly. That's it's the same thing that I'm talking about. It, how do I get back to to feeling good about myself? How do I get back to being in harmony with the world yeah. around me? There, I mean, you can you can just you can label it in many many different ways. But as long as we're coming from a place of disconnection, right? Um, then that's our perspective, and it's 
because essentially we're not. We're connected even, we're even connected to our disconnection. Yeah. It's an, it's an integral part of, of our experience in the moment. And when we're not experiencing that, then we're not experiencing it. But um, I have been very well trained to avoid discomfort and to run from discomfort and to run towards the quote-unquote light. Not, not the real light, but the conception or the wishful light. Yeah. You know, here's, here's a short poem, and, and I actually yeah, I have it in the book, but you may remember it from St. John of the Cross, which is very much part of this conversation, and, and it's called Development. And here's the poem. Once I said to God, how do you teach us? And he replied, quote, if you were playing chess with someone who had infinite power and infinite knowledge and wanted to make you a master of the game, where would all the chess pieces be at every moment? Indeed, not only where he wanted them, but where all were best for your development. And that is every situation of one's life. And also every situation of everybody's life, all yeah. at the same time. Yeah. And, and throughout time and history, yeah. past and future, most likely. <laughs> so, so here's yeah. the chess game in your life where this, you know, this disconnection shows up, and it's, it's you know, from the perspective of the poem, wanting to make you a master of your own life as far as, this is not necessarily to say, oh, I have to get rid of the discomfort or anything. It just be, may be learning to like, so how do I live with this? How do I make this even a friend, you know, like, like in that Rumi poem, The Guest House? How do I welcome this guest then to my house and, and treat it like a guest rather than, like, medicate it or pretend it doesn't exist or I'll just go, go and get high or something like that? Or, or when, when the guest knocks, the, the quote-unquote undesirable guest knocks to, to ignore it, to not open the door. Right. Right. So that's what you're talking about as mastery. Yeah, is, is mastering that we can welcome it all in, and then, then you get to decide. Here's your lovely free will that says, so what am I going to do with this now? Should, I, should we hang out? You know, like, like when I talk to, say, say, like my mother, we've talked about this before with her anxiety, and then I'll just say, why don't you sit down and have a conversation with it? See, see what it wants. That's that's an interesting approach, but you know what you know what occurred to me is that we we have this sense of free will that we can determine our responses to things, yeah. and I don't know if that's really really true. That may be an illusion. That maybe all we're really doing is having direct experience of whatever it is we're experiencing as it's unfolding. And it may appear that we're making certain strategic choices, but it could be that we are just experiencing this unfolding of all that is, and that we have no actual say in it, that our sort of say in it is what we're saying to ourselves about what's happening, as if we're the ones in control, that we're the ones who have agency when, in fact, we're just part of the whole. 
Yeah, we're just part of the of the bigger game. Yeah. The yeah, homeless. you know, that was that was remember there was that quote, I can't remember how many conversations we had ago, and now I'm gonna paraphrase, but it was Meister Eckhart that said that that and again this is his language, he uses the term God, but that in order for God to experience the world, that God had to create the soul. That was the only way God could experience this world. So all these crazy things you're talking about, like your individual experiences, depression, the darkness, all that kind of stuff, it's still how God experiences the world, uh, you know, through, through our souls, and that it's all part of this larger thing, because God couldn't do it otherwise by itself. The funny thing for me, though, is I don't understand what the soul has to do with any of it. I, my sense is God, you know, if God wanted to experience itself, God just needed to create itself, to manifest itself in some way, in some multi-faceted way to, to begin the process of self-exploration, and that the soul is is just one of is at best just one of the facets of it maybe maybe i don't know see it's a semantical thing i don't know what the soul is i don't know what it means and this is wgdr plainfield and wgdh hardwick <laughs> goddard college community radio playing the game here um i'm I'm having this wonderful conversation with Rick Halterman, who is the author of Curriculum of the Soul, and we're, 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 we're talking about, right now, I'm questioning this notion of this term soul, and I don't know what it is. I don't know what it means. I'm really well, it, clueless. I don't know if this helps, and of course... You know, what do I know? You know, it's not like I could, you know, put soul in a jar and, and analyze it or anything. My sense, and this is purely a feeling, uh, but also it's from, you know, the poetry I've read, all the different readings that I've done. The soul is the intermediary between God and the world. And that basically God doesn't know what it, what it feels like to drive a Lamborghini, for instance. So it had to put some kind of something in these human bodies in order to be able to translate that experience. But if God is God and, and is everything, why would it, why would it, need, why would any, it need an any sort of intermediary when it can directly experience everything through every aspect of itself? Well, then at that point we would be just tools in, in the hands of the divine. But not but no, not tools. We are we are the divine. We are integral parts of the divine and we're just experiencing everything is experiencing whatever it's experiencing within within the overall dance of it. What you know I and well, it's I guess, tricky. And that, it's language. <laughs> language is, is just so I know, tricky. it's really hard at this point, don't you? <laughs> and and I, I guess I, it's like somehow some, some piece of the divine has to show up inside of us. As but, these but how could it not be there? If we, if we are integral parts of this overall wholeness of the universe, then, and in the holographic sense, we already are that. We already contain everything within ourselves 
But I, but I imagine, you know, that my own teacher would say, but that's only because we have the soul in there. And, and this, then this gets into a larger conversation, like, so, for instance, does the shrimp in the sea, do they all have souls? You know, and I don't know the answer to things like that, because I'll just be honest, I'm not smart enough. Well, I just have no idea what, what, what that term soul means, what it is, because the shrimp is every, every much a, an a integral part of this whole thing, part of this yeah. whole thing as, as yeah. any of us are. We are no more divine than anything else, not even a rock or, or a, a pile, a steamy pile of stinking, you know, excrement. Right, right. Except there does seem to be one distinction, and I don't know how important this is or not. For some reason, we've been, as human beings, been given a certain consciousness and this ability, as far as free will, to choose different actions where it tends to be in other areas of the reptile, animal, insect kingdoms that they're just, they're sort of programmed, although in fact, as you know, like if you have a dog, you realize like, oh, this animal truly can respond to all kinds of things and is not just running on default mode all the time. So what you're talking about now is how we have within ourselves the ability to be aware of our awareness. Yes. Yes. And that's a very, very interesting thing. Well, it's like you being aware that there's a darkness that has, that has come over you. That's very interesting. Then you have many options as far as, oh, here's an interesting piece of information. Now, you, you know one option is simply you could identify with it, and then you're just locked into that space, um, and that's interesting in itself. Then you could also do the other thing of like, oh, Tonio, I have like 12 different tools that I've just learned in only in the last year. Why do I see if, if any of those might even have any impact on this just for fun, just to play with it? Mm -hmm. Right, and the only way to really test those things is to make our life a kind of a living hell to a certain degree in order to <laughs> apply it, right? Yes, it can. <laughs> Otherwise, it would be pointless if you were already happy to, to try to apply one of those tools. Well, that would be like, you know, 19, what was it? No, I'm sorry, Brave New World, where, you know, everybody was taking Soma, S-O-M-A, you know, that drug which basically kept them in a bliss state all the time. So there was no contrast in terms of your feelings or thoughts or anything like that. Right, and we don't really learn or grow or expand or have the possibility of any of that or of, of really any experience without contrast. And, right. I, and that's, see, this is where we get into what I think is one of the most fascinating aspects of everything and is the paradox, is the element of paradox in things and that paradox seems to be inherent in everything Potentially, although uh -huh. although often we will not we'll see things as being nice and clean and but but the element of paradox I think it's like being aware of awareness mm -hmm. being aware of that that encompasses things like 
being aware of the the notion of free will, like including the question, you know, do we really have free will or or is it just a self delusion that we yeah. have of yeah. because awareness awareness of awareness there's probably in many different ways that we could talk about it or characterize that experience. But to me, ultimately, the awareness of awareness is just pure awareness, is just pure presence. Whereas we could be telling ourselves, oh, I'm aware that I'm aware. Oh, how, how lofty of me. <laughs> how how far above the rest of I'll write a book. <laughs> right. I'm an expert or I'm special. <laughs> you know, my yeah. ego, you know, pumping up our egos. Right, right, but, but it's an element just, of separation. It's it's, I, it's an element I'm glad of that you brought that word up because to bring it bring it still into this larger conversation we're having about new paradigms. I think that the old paradigm that separateness all that is really kind of how I, I view it as what I would call the ego-centered world. Yes. And the new, the new paradigm to me is heading more towards the soul-centered world, which is going to be like all mean, those little pieces. That you mean the, whole, the wholeness? And, all, and getting to our loving. Well, you mean, so when you say soul, you mean the wholeness yes, paradigm. the wholeness, and also, you know, it's like your friend... Your, your friend who, when I discussed on the phone with him, he said this really lovely thing. He said, you know, Rick, when we're talking about the soul, we're really talking about everything that's hidden in plain sight, i.e. our curiosity, our courage, our desires, all these things, but not from an ego-separate point of view, but more from an integral point of view. How does all of it get integrated so it isn't just my world and my needs and all that, but it's also going to include everybody else in the whole picture. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So that's why I guess, and maybe this is, and, and this could be kind of my own naivete, and, and you can tell me so accordingly, <laughs> you know, that when I think of this idea of the evolution of the soul, then the thin things start to make some kind of sense to me, even though I still can't describe the mystery of this wild ride of being alive, that that's always going to be the fascination and part of the thrill and the terror of it all. But that, that when I have this kind of overview of, oh, so if this is really about the evolution of the soul, then how do I live my life accordingly, and what might I be doing that would help foment this new paradigm to show up. So it sounds to me that what you're talking about is really a version of the map to wholeness. Yes. <laughs> the or the map of the journey of, of the human being yeah. to wholeness. Yeah, because I think what the way, the, and, and that, this is just, again, another way to put it, that the, the soul has always been around. It's always there. But, and, and as you know, there have been those people. It's like when I was listening to your lovely collage about Leonard Cohen and, and going, now this guy is so soulful. You know, it's not only, you know, the lyrics, but his whole conversation. He's just, he's just very present with, with this whole view of the world that, that, 
that now we're trying to get, instead of an ego-centered world, we want to put the ego in its proper place as a servant of the soul, rather than the soul being just a bystander on the playing field of life. Or perhaps this notion of the soul, the soul is is a, a more subtle, more refined level of our experience yeah. of ourselves? Yeah, that's nice. That's nicely put. I mean, I'm, I don't know. I'm just asking. No, no, I think that's quite right, because we, you know, that there is, and I think, for instance, part of the reason why feminism came about from my perspective is that, you know, the women were, were basically saying, we're, we're tired of this heavy-handed masculine crap going on. And also not tired being, of it. And not it's, being included exactly in in the game in the wholeness of, of of this world, of everything. Not being treated fairly, not being included as yeah. equals. Equal partner, equal players, equal um, elements. So if we pull the heaviness out of this, it was like last week I had this day of feminine drenching. Almost it was really quite accidentally and part of it was I saw the recent film called Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. I'm looking forward to seeing that. And it's a French film directed by women. The only characters in the film are, are women, and, and it's a period piece, so, you know, there's no electricity. It's all done by candlelight. It's on the coast of France and, and Brittany. And the whole conversation between the women, particularly the two younger, younger women who fall in love, is so exquisite. And I was thinking as I sat there, Tony, I was like, is there a man that I know that I could bring to this film and say, you have to check this out. It is so gorgeous. This is as close to poetry as you're going to find in conversation between human beings. Mm. It was thrilling. Mm. And I think it's the very thing you're just talking about. There's going to be this kind of, uh, I don't know, this, this lightening up of that heavy-handed, masculine, ego-centered thing to get to this new world where there's going to be way more feminine present, and it's going to be like when I did a, my own radio show, when I was talking about the new paradigm, I was, it was for Valentine's Day, I was like, well, so what might a new paradigm in relationships look like? It doesn't matter whether you're straight or gay or you know, trans, whatever, that, but how, is, how are we going to be looking at a level playing field unlike what has happened in the past? Mm. Yes, yes. Yes, you're you're describing the new paradigm very nicely. So, so that's where I think, and it's the thing I think that's hard, and, and at the same time, is so thrilling to be alive right now to watch the collapse of some of this older stuff, and and I think it's calling on each of us to do our work to keep showing up. That's the important thing: just keep showing up to whatever is happening, whatever is present, and the new paradigm will evolve. But we have to keep showing up. And if we keep, for instance, showing up to the old paradigm and believing, well, I can just buy another Hummer and I can just keep using you know, fossil fuels for the rest of my life, well, that's probably not going to help be that helpful. Yes. It, as you were saying that, it's, it's sort of crystallized in me that that's the difference. That's probably or that could be the difference between whether we completely self-destruct and don't collectively make it to a new world, a new paradigm, and or whether we, we do. And I think by, by really showing up, by 
by being present, by embracing the discomfort, the disorientation, the dismemberment, the, the trauma, the tragedy, and the hope, um, all at the same time, the paradoxical nature of it all, the, the disorientation again, and the dismemberment again, by showing up, by staying present with it, that's the only way that we can actually make it through to the other side, to, to a new paradigm. Yeah, and, and, and even if you put it in the context, for instance, what you were talking about a little bit ago in terms of the darkness showing up in your own life, even that, that and, and it seems to me you're already doing that, you're showing up to that, that's going to create a kind of resilience. Even if there's no you know, apparent thing in, in the moment as far as, well, I'm not getting clear on this, I'm not feeling better, da-da-da-da-da, it's still creating some resilience in you that you can deal with that. It's not taking you up because you're showing up to it so that when the crazier things, and as you know, crazy things are happening almost on a daily basis on this planet at the moment, we have to have a certain amount of resilience in order to keep going. Yes. Well, a lifetime of, of experiencing this kind of chaos does... Sometimes pretty strong, hasn't it? Sometimes, sometimes has the effect of of uh, building resi- a resilience that we can stay present in the face, of, in the midst of all of this. Yeah, stay present while we sit, or dance, or stand, or lie in the fire. Yeah, and and I think that this is a time when whatever practices one has. You know, for me, I, you know, like I meditated before we have our conversation this morning. And, and I do these certain things, exercise I'll do a little bit later. Whatever it is that brings us back to that center inside of ourselves. You know, in theory, you could call it your loving. Uh, and I'm, I think that's all part of it. But it creates that resilience. And it's by getting so used to going to that center, we can go out in the world even when you know, every day we're hearing something catastrophic. Or what appears to be catastrophic. Yeah. Because a lot, exactly. of, a lot of all of this is just appearance. It's uh-huh. just appearance. And it's, a lot of it is extremely convincing. <laughs> it's extremely convincing. But it, it, it's just appearance. It's, what, it's what's, what we're observing and experiencing on on the surface of, of things, on the material side of things. And that's only part of the picture. They're like, like what they've, like science has discovered that the universe is mostly dark matter and dark energy that they can't measure. They don't see it. They, they, it's this, it's very similar in, in terms of what we experience of the world, what we see is probably just a small part of what's really going on, and yet we've been conditioned to only acknowledge those parts that we can observe or connect with through our five physical senses. You're absolutely right. And and here, because I know we're starting to run out of time, Tonio, here's a short poem by Ellen Bass, which may be a, a place, you know, to head it, this is, well, 
this, this may be heading towards that new paradigm. The, the name of the poem is called The Thing Is. Here's the poem. The thing is to love life, to love it even when you have no stomach for it, and everything you've held dear crumbles like burnt paper in your hand, your throat filled with the silt of it. When grief sits with you, its tropical heat thickening the air, heavy as water, more fit for gills than lungs. When grief weighs you down like your own flesh, only more of it, an obesity of grief, you think, how can a body withstand this? Then you hold life like a face between your palms, a plain face, no charming smile, no violet eyes, and you say, yes, I will take you, I will love you again. Hmm. That is so perfectly beautiful. And there's that showing up again, which is so beautiful to me, even in the midst of absolute despair. It's like, even, you know, it's like, here, here's this wild idea that, 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 you know, like I have this, and this may be the, the title of the next book, Luminescence of the Ordinary. I have this experience, Tonya, of having died and gone to the other side and I'm bargaining with the divine and saying, just give me 24 more hours back on earth. And then they come back, and then from that new perspective, it's like even the grief feels great because I can feel that versus on the other side, probably don't get a chance to do that. Talk more about that. Well, I just think this, this is just, you know, again, this is my imagination mm-hmm. that on the other side, we don't have bodies. We don't have, the, you know, the, this whole thing that here we are on this side and we get to feel joy and sadness and desire and sexuality and sensuality, all these things. And that when I get on the other side and I'm imagining, because there's like those films, having can wait. And it's like, oh, well, somebody's given a second chance to come back. And what would it be like just the ordinary smell of the air outside of your house in the woods in Vermont? That wouldn't that be just thrilling where right now we get so, so used to this everyday experience of being alive that we almost, you know, our senses can get dulled in the process. To be that alive that even the smell of the air, even the feel of the air, even, you know, to touch your own hands, to touch, you know, the skin of somebody who you care for. Like, this is the most amazing experience on the planet that, that's available because I have a body to even do this. Yes, and it includes all of the other experiences that we don't consider to be pleasant or enjoyable. Right, right. And to me, that's where if we start getting into this other thing of gratitude, it's like, hey, man, on the other side, I don't get to feel any grief. And the thing I love about grief for me is that there's no judgment, there are no conditions. I can just sit there and cry. And it's like how beautiful that I can, and I just, for me, it's one of the, one of the most lovely feelings that I have, but it's a very private thing too. But I, I get, it's, I can literally go to this place emotionally, completely fill it up, and there's no judgment, no anything, and I don't have to do the typical male thing of like, no, you're not supposed to cry, and you're not supposed to be vulnerable, all that kind of stuff. Like, no, I can go there, and I am completely at home. Universe as paradox. <laughs> well, in, in that it contains everything, all experiences, yeah. the, the entire, entire spectrum. 
And when you first mentioned that, I, I finished a book club uh, meeting not long ago, Tonio. I said, you know, I was telling everybody, I said, don't forget, the divine has an incredible sense of humor. So when I walk into a grocery store, and for instance, I'll see an ex-partner there, and I can check in right away and see, like, so, Rick, is there any charge going on or not? Do I practice Ho'oponopono? But I said, I think the divine is always throwing us pop quizzes all of the time, basically to find out, so where are you today and what are you doing? Exactly. <laughs> and that's the paradox to me, which is like, no, don't take yourself too seriously because we're always going to be tested. And what a thrill that is. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> so I realize we've already vanished. You know, Tonio, before we started this conversation, I was like, you know, this might be one of my best long-term relationships I've ever been in in my life is talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I would definitely say these are the juiciest conversations I've, I've ever had on the radio or, or in, in life. And so in, in, in this regard, and I did this, again, it was a different book club meeting, but I was asking someone, and I'll ask you the same question. So, Tonio, after all these things that you've learned, all these cool people that you have talked to, and this very interesting life that you've led, would you say that things are flowing any better now than, say, when you were in your 20s or 30s? Oh, so much more so. Absolutely. Yeah. That, and I think that level of that resilience level, that the foundation yeah. level has has risen considerably or has become much more solid. And to me that's the testimony to whatever work, whatever knowledge, whatever experience you've done in your life that you've made a certain commitment that the flow just feels a lot better, doesn't it? Well, I would say that it's easier to stay present with everything that's happening than it used to be. Yeah. It's easier to to stay with the discomfort and the tragedies and the upsets and the frustrations and the things that don't seem to be going well, like the notion that if if we're becoming so enlightened, why am I still having, you know chaos and 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 things falling apart around me and in my life <laughs> as well, if as if they're they're mutually exclusive yeah i mean isn't it kind of part of the package that if one wants to believe for instance that we chose our parents and you know we basically said okay divine you know i'm ready to go back you know let, let you know give me give me the give me the trip and this is all part of the package rather than coming here and saying, well, I'm just going to be a victim. You know, this is, I think that you probably have gotten so much closer to that 100% responsibility piece, you know, just like me. When I was a kid, I was totally into the shame and blame thing because that's all I knew. This shouldn't be happening to me. And also blaming myself. Like, yeah. like I'm, I'm a failure. I'm, yes. I'm totally screwed up. Yeah. I'm, I'll never, you know... I'll always be like this. I'll always be suffering. You know, I'm, I'm a mess. I'm a failure. End yeah. of story. You know, there are some people, um, in fact, it was your friend, uh, your friend who had turned me on to, and I can't remember his name right now, who was really offering this, this 
this interesting thought that suffering is completely an option mm-hmm. as far as how one wants to view that experience. Yep. Pain, pain is, is a given, but suffering is, is an option. Yeah. yeah look, so what are you going to do with it? Is it going to be information? Are you going to identify with it? And, yeah, there is real suffering. And, you know, I still do. I mean, Antonio, I still do. You know, I'm sorry. Forgive me, uh, coronavirus. Thank you. I love you. Uh, that I'll still even do it there. Or I'll send prayers to all the men and women who fought fires in Australia so that the recovery of that landscape you know, may take place, that that's my showing up to everything that's happening, you know, that, that shows up in my field. Yes, and isn't it fascinating how all of these things we're, we are quite literally experiencing within our own field, within our own mind, within our own personal experience? Yeah, uh, uh, you know, I guess one does have the option. One could simply, you know, like I do have my mother's friends, you know, some of them don't have any access. I even have a friend here in Taos. She has no access to anything electronic as far as computers, cell phones, or anything like that. So she has, she limits what comes into her field, and that is a very conscious choice on her part. And then on the other hand, you might have somebody, the more the, the, the warrior type that really wants to get into the news uh, you know, like Robert Waterman, who will just like, he's looking for movement, you know, spiritual movement out there, but also he is like, oh, this is just a better chance to practice Ho'oponopono the whole time I'm listening to the news. What a great thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a tougher test. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it gets to be really quite fascinating, this whole wild ride of being alive. And to me, you know, just to feel it, it was like, you know, seeing that film, and I got, I got to actually experience the film I was telling you about, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It's like, oh, wow, I was reminded of, like, those very first things about falling in love. Because, you know, here I am at 67, and I'm looking at that going, wow, what a thrilling thing to be reminded of that again. Thank you for that. Mm. Well, we have about 30 seconds left. <laughs> Do you want to summarize, Catonio? <laughs> well, I think um, Ram Das said it well many, many years ago. Be here now. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. And I hope that wherever you are showing up, you're having a good time or at least an interesting time. And I can only thank you so much for these conversations. They are just I so look forward to them. Well, Rick Halterman, thank you so much for being on the show and for this delicious conversation. And everybody else, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week. Take care. Bye-bye.